0: You can donate anonymously, or you can add a message that I can see. As a podcaster, everything comes directly out of my pocket. I don't get paid to podcast. It's just my passion. So anything is appreciated to keep the show going. Thank you so much, guys. And now, on to the show. Hello, and welcome to Red Run Blonde. This is a true crime podcast. Each week, I'll explore a case, the victims, the facts, and the theories surrounding it. Some are solved and some remain unsolved. I'm your host, Aaron Fleming. So welcome to episode number four. I mentioned in my last episode about how I would love ideas for future shows, so thank you everyone for your suggestions. I want to give a special thanks to my friend Mike for this week's subject. It takes place in Pittsburgh where I live now. But I'd never heard of the case. My hometown is about an hour from Pittsburgh, but at this time, I was living in Columbus, Ohio. I can't believe I haven't heard of it. It's a crazy story. Do you get along with your neighbors? Most of us do. There may be minor disputes over loud music, dogs barking, or silly things like shrubbery. What would you do if you didn't get along with your neighbor? What if that dispute led to murder? That's what I'm going to discuss today. And believe me, you won't believe what happened in this case. I confess that I don't know my current neighbors. Only last week did I meet one across the street. I keep to myself. After researching this case, I bet you'll think twice about having any disputes with your neighbors. 44-year-old Ann Hoover loved her home at 321 Lawn Street in South Oakland. She loved it so much that she was in a constant battle with her 28-year-old neighbor, Roy Kirk. They lived side-by-side in row houses. On Tuesday, March 25, 1997, Anne was to accompany her friend, Rose Liptak and several neighbors for a scheduled court hearing. They had filed a lawsuit against Roy. He was appealing fines for health and building code violations that were filed against him, when Anne and other neighbors made formal complaints against him for failing to upkeep his property. Anne was ready to tell Senior Common Pleas Judge John O'Brien about the litter and debris her neighbor had been dumping on the yard. When Anne didn't answer the door, Rose was concerned. Quote, I knew something was wrong. She wouldn't miss this. Rose took the others to the courthouse. Maybe Anne would already be there. While she did that, a neighbor broke into Anne's home to check on her welfare. What if she'd fallen and knocked herself unconscious? Anne was not in her home, and she was not at the courthouse. And neither was Roy Kirk. The concern now turned to panic, and Rose called the police. This was not like her at all. When the police arrived, Rose told them to check next door. Police knocked on the door of Roy Kirk's building. They were met in the dilapidated living room by a barefoot and dirty Roy. He questioned why they were in his home. Pittsburgh police simply said they wondered why he missed his day in court. He replied with, I was afraid to go down. They described him as reluctant to talk and antsy. And antsy makes policemen nervous. So they asked Roy to step outside. After they noticed blood on his shirt... They decided they needed to take a better look inside. One officer walked back to the area Roy had originally come from, and he noticed an orange extension cord that trailed down the steps to the basement from the outside of the building. As he walked down the steps, he noticed the cord was attached to lights placed on a stand to light a corner of the basement. Nearby was a circular saw, a hacksaw, and some tin snips. I had no idea what tin snips were, so I had to look it up. They're sharp shears used to cut sheet metal. The officer then sees what looks like a mannequin in the far corner. But we know it's never a mannequin. He realized he was looking at a body. Well, he was looking at parts of a body. The torso of Ann Hoover had been sawed in half just below the ribcage. Her arms and legs were cut off and they were placed in separate plastic bags that had been wrapped in duct tape. The officer ran outside yelling, Cuff him! to the other officers. Ranting and blood splattered, Roy Kirk was arrested for murder and placed into the police van. So the story's about to get even crazier. But first, let's go look back and examine what could have driven this man to murder his neighbor. Ann Hoover's friends describe her as upbeat, dynamic, and intelligent. The Pittsburgh native went to school for music in Marietta, Ohio. The chairman of Marietta's music, music department called her one of the best students the school had ever seen. She stayed in Marietta for 10 years before returning to Pennsylvania. She had worked in New York, West Virginia, and eastern Pennsylvania doing marketing and fundraising for the Pittsburgh Symphony. She then worked for six years at Direct Advantage Marketing and loved music, particularly the piano. She regularly attended recitals in Pittsburgh, and she even gave piano lessons and had been to New York and Philadelphia to pursue musical studies. Her tendonitis was a problem, but that was on the mend. She'd made friends with Rose Liptack through Rose's brother, Frank Sampson, who'd rented to Anne for 10 years. He owned property on Lawn Street in South Oakland. He sold Anne her first home, a row house on 321 Lawn Street. It was run down, but Anne saw it as an opportunity to fix up the building. Working very hard, she took immense pride in her new home. Her friend, Rebecca Wallace, said, Her passion for music was met only with her passion for her home and neighborhood. Anne was part of a group who were interested in beautifying the once rundown area. Oakland is a home to the University of the Pittsburgh campus. The streets are always buzzing with the coming and goings of college students. In addition to the campus, there are a couple of hospitals, lots of businesses and loads of college housing. Lots of these houses have fallen into disrepair due to negligent landlords, and one of these happened to be Roy Kirk. He didn't start out that way, though. He owned his own company, Grade Incorporated, through which he bought homes at sheriff sales to fix up and sell. At one time, he was elected president of Oak Cliff Housing, and that's a residence group whose goal was to beautify the six-block area in South Oakland. His tenure ran from 1989 until 1996, when he was voted out for not maintaining his own property. Roy had bought the attached house at 323 Lawn Street, but he kept it boarded up. The roof was torn up, the gutters were off. He never fixed them, and that caused water damage to Ann's immaculate home. Chris Fromm lived behind the two homes. Anne had asked him to photograph the damage done to her home. He considered Roy, quote, kind of off, but otherwise nice. But Roy's unkempt yard and house were eyesores that attracted rodents. Anne had pressured Roy to renovate his home. Their once-friendly relationship became contentious. The state of the building was an ongoing battle between the two, it soon turned into arguments in court cases. At one point, Anne even offered to buy the building from him, but he refused. So the residents banded together to see to it that he fixed his properties. He had two on Lawn Street and one on Hamlet Street, but he continued to let them deteriorate. He repeatedly ignored mandates and deadlines to clean up his property. The Health Department cited him with three separate violations over several months, and the City Housing Court Magistrate, Irene McLaughlin, kept increasing these fines. They came to a sum total of $42,461. Some of the charges ranged from failure to clean up trash to not taking care of high weeds and actively pursued him to make the changes. Philip and Mary Ellen Cossack lived on the other side of Anne's home. They said Roy was trying to make the repairs, but he didn't have the money because Anne was always taking him to court. All his money was gone, and she kept after him. Mary Ellen said, quote, She, referring to Anne, was not the saint everyone was making her out to be, and Kirk is not the monster everyone says he is. She hassled him, and he always kept quiet and listened to her. Now it looks like she pushed him too far and he finally blew up. Her husband Philip said Roy was very nice and used to help Ann out when she was doing her own renovations. When they first knew each other they got along, but things went bad. Towards the end Philip said about Roy, he was usually clean, pretty clean looking, but I think he was completely out of his mind at that point. Roy had minor infractions on his criminal record but did have some mental problems having spent some time under psychiatric care. Anne and her neighbors filed a lawsuit against him for neglecting his property. The day before they were to appear in court was a normal day. Anne went to a piano recital of a friend at the piano gallery downtown before work. She stayed late at work Monday night to discuss with a colleague her testimony for next day's court appearance. She was last seen by neighbors at 11.20 p.m. So police theorize that Roy slipped into her home late Monday night or early Tuesday morning through a makeshift hole he had made in the wall connecting the row houses in the basement. Roy had removed bricks between the floor joists. These are a series of horizontal members supporting a floor beam or ceiling. The joists are supported by foundations, wall framing, or beams. He strangled her and hit her repeatedly with a blunt object. Detectives collected a ball-peen hammer and a statue with blood on it in Roy's basement. Most likely one of these was used to bludgeon her. He then dragged her back through the hole into his basement around 9 a.m., when he prepared to dismember her. Authorities say she was dead before he dismembered her, although the exact time of death couldn't be nailed down. It took four officers to handcuff Roy. He resisted with a ferocity yelling, just kill me, just get it over with. Around 10 a.m., he was placed into the police van. The van was parked for 20 to 30 minutes outside the crime scene, before departing at 10.20 for the Investigations Branch in East Liberty. After the 12-minute ride, officers went to let Roy out of the van to transfer him inside. They found him hanging by his belt on the back door. He had slipped off his belt and fashioned it into a noose. They attempted CPR, but he was dead. So how could this be possible? His hands were cuffed behind his back. The county coroner, Cyril Wecht, was brought in to investigate. He's a very renowned forensic pathologist who has worked and consulted on several high profile cases over the years from Robert Kennedy, Sharon Tate, Brian Jones, Elvis, John Bonet Ramsey, Lacey Peterson, and Anna Nicole Smith, just to name a few. He's from the area and served as a coroner from 1970 to 1980. And then again, from 1996 to 2006, Cyril Wecht is a very outspoken person and not afraid to ruffle some feathers. He declared John Benet's death was a result of a sex game committed by her father, and he certainly didn't earn any favors with the police department on this case either. He criticized the police for not checking on Roy on the ride to East Liberty. He suggested that police remove any belts, shoelaces, and neckties before placing anyone in a vehicle. Police Chief Robert McNeely Jr. disagreed. Quote, I don't think he understands how difficult it is to handle prisoners. It's impossible for officers to start taking clothing away from people before they put them in the wagon. Arresting somebody is a dangerous situation in which officers get hurt all the time. Undressing people on the street just gives them more opportunity to fight an officer and for an officer to get kicked in the face. He went on to say, We haul prisoners by the thousands every year. This is one of those extraordinary incidents. It's not unusual for somebody to be in the back of a wagon for 15 minutes while officers are finishing a prisoner roundup or working on a case." He also declared that no amount of precaution would have helped if someone were hell-bent on suicide. And it was indeed suicide, as Cyril Wex and Quest determined. His office went to great pains to recreate what they theorized happened in the van. They made a video reenacting what occurred. And in this video, it would show after having his hands handcuffed behind his back and his feet shackled, He was placed in the van. So he then slid his belt to the back, unbuckled, and removed it. He took his belt and looped it through the metal grating on the van door. He then fashioned that into a noose, through which he placed his head. He hanged himself by falling forward, thus cutting off his air supply. He probably died about six minutes after that. And considering that the van sat from twenty to thirty minutes before taking off, he would have been dead well before it started moving on the, tri- the trip to East Liberty. Roy was unfortunately agile enough to take his own life. Being five foot eight and slender, it wasn't impossible. As Cyril Wecht said, "This was an act of great dexterity, balance, and positioning." To do it in a moving vehicle that is not spacious while going over the city streets probably would not have been possible. Police were cleared of any suspicion. Although since Roy was the second person in two years to commit suicide in a police van, a lot of blame was directed at the department and their procedures. In August of 1995, 31-year-old Kelly Finn hanged herself with her own shoelaces. She'd been arrested in downtown Pittsburgh for possession of drug paraphernalia, and while in a van, she got her legs in front of her cuffs, pulled off her shoelaces, and made a noose, much like Roy did. After police reviewed the circumstances, they determined that no procedures had been violated. There was no official inquest held. Just like in Roy's case, the police were not culpable. Wecht insisted that they should implement some procedural and equipment changes to prevent another death. He was also the one to examine Ann Hoover's body, being the county coroner, and there's a very good episode of Autopsy 5 where he discusses the case. He said her head had been battered extensively. She'd had obvious multiple fractures of the head and lacerations to the face from blunt force injuries. There was a noose around her neck, which had probably been used to initially asphyxiate her. He had been interrupted by police in the act of dismemberment. So there's still disagreement over who is ultimately to blame. Some say Roy. He wasn't popular in the neighborhood. Anne's friend, Rose Liptak, said of him, I knew him. He's crazy. I was scared of him the last time we went to court. Anne also repeatedly thought he might be crazy. When they last left court, she mentioned to Rose that she should get a protection order against him because she just didn't trust him. Anne's brother, John, has a deep hatred for the man. He said, "'Now I don't have to kill him.' "'My mother said, God have mercy on his soul, but I say, God damn his soul. May he burn in hell forever.' They're very strong words, but very understandable. Justice is served, said Maria Bergwin, whose husband Maury was president of the housing club. Maury and Maria were also involved in the lawsuit against him. Roy was always on, but I never thought he would do something this crazy. She went on to say, I wasn't totally shocked, Roy to me, and I'm no psychologist by any means. He seemed like he could snap, just from the responses he gave in court. He was intelligent, but you could tell that something was just not right. At one hearing, Roy had appeared in court with a bandage wrapped around his head and a brace on his leg, insisting that the hearing be continued because he had been shot in the head and leg. No one could find any report of Roy actually being shot. Maury said, Almost all of the people in the neighborhood were involved in trying to get him to improve his properties. The bottom line is this wasn't over property or court cases. This tragedy was the result of a very sick individual who had psychiatric problems. When Roy's home was searched, it was filthy. Garbage was everywhere and the stench was absolutely unbearable. Animal control had to be called in to take his 18-foot, 30-pound Burmese python and the rodents it ate. Police then later looked into whether or not he was connected to the death of another person. Faye Jackson, 24, of Garfield, was a sex worker also known as Faye Norris. Her severed legs and severed arm were found in October of 1994 in a stream around Route 286 in Monroeville. She was identified by her fingerprints, but the rest of her was never found. Sergeant Robert Payne of the Allegheny County Police said dismemberment is rare, and they wanted to see if there was a connection to this case. Roy had once threatened to kill himself and his girlfriend. However, no evidence was found connecting him to Faye Jackson. The case itself is a rabbit hole you can fall into. Many think the area had a serial killer preying on sex workers since the late 80s. There's over a dozen deaths that have possible connections. So this may be something to look into for a future case. I think it would have been interesting to see how Roy would have pleaded had he not hanged himself. There was his supposed history of mental problems and psychiatric treatment would he have pled insanity? Or was he pushed to do it? Even friends of Anne talk of how aggressive she was in going after Roy. One said, she wasn't on this crusade to fix up this guy's place just because it had some cause she believed in. She very much had a financial interest at stake. They insist that she never got personal or nasty. They referred to her years as a telemarketer, as an example of someone who could negotiate with people. They said when she first lodged a complaint, she went to the library to learn about statutes and offered herself as a witness to the health department. She wanted to be well-informed on the matter. They cite her offer to buy Roy's property as a kind of peace offering and was very close to her family in Ross Township. She reportedly loved animals. Before she left the house, she would say I love you to her blind poodle, Nikki. But the words of her neighbor, Mary Ellen Kosack, ring in my head. The part about Anne not being a saint and Roy not being a monster. I don't think anyone should be murdered for arguing with a neighbor. But I do think vulnerable, unstable people can be t- pushed to do unimaginable things. I guess I agree with her brother when he said, there's just no justification for this, no way, no how. The day they were supposed to appear in court, the warder of their deaths rocked the courthouse. An assistant county solicitor who was representing the health department at the hearing said, this thing really knocks the wind out of you. You'd think these are so routine. He was referring to housing disputes. Judith Schneider, an assistant city solicitor who represented the city at the hearing, was so shaken that she went home early. The whole health department was in a state of shock. Anne's friends want to make sure she is remembered. In 2001, the Anne Allison Hoover Memorial Park was opened in North Hills Estates. Marianne and Thomas Anderson donated five acres of land for it. Anne was Marianne's babysitter when she was growing up. They stayed friends long after she grew up, and even when Anne moved away. Marianne said of the park The vision is to have a place where we can meet and carol at Christmas time and have quartets to sing in the summer. Anne loved music. And people in Ross hope that she will be remembered for her life and not for how she died. The park should not emphasize Anne's death. Rather, it should celebrate her life and all she stood for. Regardless of whether anyone is to blame, two people are dead, and that's a tragedy. It's not an uncommon incident, either. There are entire series about neighbor disputes on TV like Fear Thy Neighbor. And who hasn't heard of the infamous Hatfield and McCoy dispute? People get very heated about their homes. It's a sanctuary for most of us. So next time you find yourself wanting to bang on the ceiling with a broomstick over your upstairs neighbor's heavy footsteps or loud music, or shooting the guy next door a dirty look for parking in your spot, stop yourself. And think, maybe this person is a little unhinged. Instead, go inside and have a glass of wine with a hot bath. Although, this is the same advice my boyfriend and mother give me about road rage, and maybe I should take it. We can all do with a little more patience and understanding. So that was episode four. I'm loving the feedback everyone's giving me. Please check me out on iTunes and subscribe and rate the podcast. I'm also on SoundCloud and other various podcast apps check out the Red Rum Blonde Facebook page, and find me on Twitter at, at Blonde Red Rum. I'm definitely going to keep up with the weekly podcasts, so you can find another one next week. Thanks for listening.